Good morning. My name is Charlie Carter. If I haven't met you yet, I was trying to think this morning. I've been coming here for about four years now, and it uh, feels like yesterday. I moved here in May of 2018 and have loved to get to know many of you. And I also know that many of you I don't know. So if I haven't met you yet, hi, my name is Charlie. And uh, excited to uh, preach while our pastor is away. I will say, though, I was an associate pastor uh, for a few years uh, before I moved here, and it seemed like something crazy would happen every time the senior pastor would leave. And uh, craziest of all was uh, a senior pastor I worked with went on sabbatical, and a lady tried to take over the service one morning. And uh, so please, ladies, just stay in your seats. We can talk afterward (laughs) if you want to talk. So uh, anyway, turn to Psalm 56, and uh, this has been a joy to study and to prepare and preach. It is a beautiful song of trust in God. And uh, so what I'd like to do to introduce this is just to walk through the inscription of the psalm with you. And that will kind of lay out for us a little bit of context of what we're looking at. And then we'll get into what the main part of the psalm is about. So Psalm 56, look again at that. It might be verse 1, depending on your translation. It might just be really tiny words above verse 1, verse 0. Uh, But that's what we're looking at, the inscription of Psalm 56. And it says, To the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, a mictum of David. And I want to get a stopwatch going here so we're not late today. A mictum of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. And just want to walk through a couple of these phrases. The first one is pretty simple, to the chief musician. We often forget that the book of Psalms was put together for post-exilic Jews as they came back to the land and they rebuilt the temple and they had to learn again to worship. And so the Psalms, as we have them, or closely to how we have them, were a book put together to help post-exilic Jews sing in their worship at the temple. And so this is like the hymn book of the ancient Jews. And so it's fitting that these are to the musician. Like, that's what these were for. Just like we sang hymns a moment ago, this was a hymn. This was a song. It's not really intended to be didactically parsed out. It's meant to be sung and felt. Just like we sang, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus,' that's what this is. It's a a hymn about how awesome it is to trust God. It says it's set to the silent dove in distant lands. And this is actually a really unique inscription We're not really sure what the Hebrew means here, but there is one word we're very sure of, and it's that word dove. If you actually look back at Psalm 55, in verse 6, David remarked that he wished he could be like a dove, if you remember that from last week. Thematically, that's probably why Psalm 55 and 56 were put next to each other. In one psalm, David wishes he would be like a dove and could fly away. In Psalm 56, he is the dove. He is not in the land of Israel. He has fled from Saul to protect his life, and he's now in an enemy territory of the Philistines. And uh, he has flown. He is the bird. He's the dove. And it's interesting that there's some tune that they would have known, like, oh, what's, just like we sang that song, it's, the words are different, but the tune is America the Beautiful. That's what they're doing right here. 
hey, here are the words in the tune. The, the, the song is the dove, the silent dove in a far-off place. Probably or maybe written by David himself. We don't know. Uh, the next phrase, uh, a mictum of David, uh, this is probably the weirdest of them all, and we'll see next week that Psalm 57 is also a mictum. There's a few of them. Uh, we really don't know what this word means. It could be a liturgical term. Uh, some people try to look at the root of the term to figure out what it means. That's probably our best attempt is to, okay, what could the word mean? And it likely means something of an intentional inscription for reminder. So it's to carefully write something down so you don't forget it, maybe the idea. And that makes sense. This is a very important time in David's life. And he didn't want to forget how he felt. And he didn't want to forget that in that moment of fear, he needed to trust God. So we have a mictum of David. And what's really unique is we're given very specific historical context. This is when the Philistines captured him in Gath. And Pastor Ryan already pointed out that we know where this is. This is where Goliath was from. So to say that David would be known is maybe a little bit of an understatement. Think about the most important person from your town. And if somebody came and killed them, you'd be like, yeah, I remember David. He's that guy who slung the stone and then chopped off our champion Goliath's head with his own sword. I remember that guy. He's probably public enemy number one. It's quite ironic that to save his life from Saul, he flees and he's captured now in the place where he's killed their greatest champion. And as we're going to see in the psalm, that provides a lot of stress to David. He is afraid for his life. And that is where we figure out as he sings this song, what it's all about. What is Psalm 56 about? David reminds us that God wants us to trust him and his word in our days of trouble. Now, we don't maybe have the same exact situation. I don't know if any of you have fled to Grimes this morning in fear of your life. Uh, Hopefully, you haven't killed anyone from our congregation. If you did, forgiveness is great. We are not going to hurt you. It's not necessarily the same circumstances, right? But we do have difficult days. We have times when we are afraid. We have times when we have been wronged. We have times when we are alone. And in those moments, it's hard to trust God. And this song is a beautiful reminder that in those moments of life, God wants you to trust him and to trust his word. The way that we're going to walk through the rest of the psalm is we're going to ask this question. Again, it's hard to take a song that wasn't intended to be spliced up and make points out of it, so bear with me. But we're going to ask this question. When do we need to trust God and his word? And I think this psalm gives us a few options to answer that question. Number one is in verses one through four. And we need to trust in God and his word when you are afraid. So let's read those verses again. Verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, I will praise his word. In God, 
I have put my trust, I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? We see here probably the main substance of the psalm. There are enemies that are trying to hurt David. And you might not catch it, but there's actually a very simple poetic repetition in those opening verses. If you're in the New King James, there's that word for, for man would swallow me up. And then in the next phrase, fighting all day, you see that repeated, verse 2, all day my enemies would hound me, for there are many who fight against me. Those words in the original language, for and all, actually both begin with the same letter. And as you follow the song along, you actually can see how they're parallel. It's very, it's very poetic. It's a song. And so he's repeating those ideas. You see again uh, in verse 3, actually you don't see it, so I want to point this out. It says, whenever. That, that's a nice English translation, but actually what the language says is, in the day. So it's all day these people are trying to hurt me. All day they're fighting against me. My enemies would hound me. In the day when I am afraid. So the repetition of the idea is that that day. The day when they would swallow you up. The day when there are many who fight against you. It makes perfect sense because of where he is. He's in a city where everyone would kill him if they had the chance. He is afraid for his life. Now, I don't know about you. Try to think back to the last time that you were really afraid. Not like, oh, I'm a little spooked out, but like you are genuinely afraid that something is going to happen to you. Okay? The last time that I was really afraid was two years ago. I was backpack elk hunting in the mountains of Idaho. I could point it out to you on a map. You'd have no idea where it was. You could never find it on your own. And our base camp was about 5,000 feet. We shot a mule deer the first day, and we're like, now let's go find an elk. So we hiked way up into this mountain range, and we were camping around like seven, 8,000 feet now. And, we, and so just so you know, I'm not in a tent. I'm in a teepee, so there's no floor. There's no actual barrier to keep things on the outside from coming inside. Okay, and that's going to be relevant for the rest of the story. So here we are in this nice little saddle, about 8,000 feet. I'm sleeping away, nice and cozy in my sleeping bag. It's like 3 a.m., and something wakes me up. Now, think about what wakes you up. Now, I had never heard this before, but I knew what it was instantly. Too close for comfort was a pack of wolves. Okay, and in the little draw that we were in, just down the saddle, there was probably four or five wolves howling to their heart's content. And I don't know about you, you might hear that sound at three in the morning and think, oh, wow, cool, wolves. <laughs> That's not how I felt in that moment. I can tell you what I did. My rifle was right above my pillow, and I rolled over, I unzipped, and I pulled my rifle, and I held that until I got up the next morning. I was afraid. I was afraid, just like David, surrounded by enemies and, in a sense, helpless. Like, if that wolf wanted to come and get me, I was the slowest of the group we were in. I was toast. I was afraid. 
And in that moment, what do we need to do? David says, in that moment, verse 3, in the day, when I'm afraid, what do I do? I will trust in you. Verse 4 begins what is a chorus. It's brought up again in verse 11, and it's so beautiful and forcibly written. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I will trust. You can't read it without catching the significance. Yeah, I trust God, but there's something right in the middle that you shouldn't overlook. In God, I praise his word. In God, I will trust. David's trust in the moment of fear is not himself. By the way, David is a mighty warrior. He is very capable of protecting himself, certainly in the wild with animals and I think on the battlefield. But in this moment, he knows he's completely helpless. He's afraid he can't do anything. In that moment, it's not David he is trusting in. I will trust God and what he has told me. And I think there's probably two specific things that David is trusting in here. One of them gets echoed later in the psalm, down in verse 13. I think David knew that even if he's killed, he's not really killed. Echoing the words of John 11, yeah, you might die, but you still live. I think David trusted God for his eternal destination, and I think that gave him comfort in the fear of his death. But I also think he knows that he was anointed to be king. The prophet Samuel came to him as a young boy, called him out of the mountains, and poured oil over his head because God wanted this man, David, to be the king of Israel. And David knew that. And David knew that when God does and says things like that, he doesn't do it flippantly. I think there in the prison or wherever he's being kept in Gath, He knows the Philistines want to kill him. He is thinking back to those moments where God has clearly told him his plan for David's life. And that is what takes the fear away. He knows that God will be true to his word and that he can trust God for his faithfulness and his unchanging truth. And we can too. I don't know what you're afraid of, Uh, Like I said earlier, I don't think any of us have fled here in fear of our life. We're in a very comfy, nice suburban area, Grimes, Iowa. There aren't any wolves outside. You don't have to worry about that. But there are things that we fear every day. We fear what people think of us. We fear uh, how we're doing in our job, in our home. Uh, Sometimes we just get afraid of where we are in life. Is this where I'm supposed to be? And in those moments of fear, God wants us to trust him and his word. That leads us to the next part of the psalm in verses 5 through 7, where we are to trust in God and his word when you have been wronged. It's very clear here that the enemies of David are oppressing him in specific ways. So look at verses 5 through 7 again and note that repetition of all day long happens again in verse 5. It's interesting poetically. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie and wait for my life. 
David is feeling wronged. He's looking at his enemies and he's wondering how they're going to get away with this. And that's actually the substance of his question there in verse 7. Shall they escape from this iniquity? He's asking God, like, are they really going to get away with this? Are they going to do this to me all day and nothing happened to them? You ever feel, feel like that? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but if you're a normal, breathing, living human, we often feel wronged, don't we? Maybe it's in your home, it's your spouse. Thankfully, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about the kids either. But maybe your kids, your wife, your husband have wronged you. Think about your workplace. Do you ever have coworkers that do things and you're like, why are you doing that to me? Why did you say it like that? You know, you catch their tone and you're just like, this is not the day for that, Jeff. Okay? I don't work with any, well, I used to work with a Jeff. I do work with a Jeff. Let me take that back. I, have, I love Jeff at Faith. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Jeff Bunger is the greatest registrar we ever had. Anyway, I just threw out a random name thinking I don't work with a Jeff and it turns out, I do work with a Jeff. So I don't know about you. Do you ever feel like that? You feel like you're wronged, something's out of your control, and it's painful to you? Do you ever find yourself asking God, are they really going to get away with this? Are you going to bring justice to them, God? And I know in those moments how my flesh normally reacts. I don't like to trust God to judge my enemies I like to judge my enemies. I like to take justice into my own hands. And I like to tell them what they've done. I like to point out they're wrong. I like to really stick it to them. And that's not what we should do in moments when we feel like we've been wronged. What does David do? Lord, in your anger, cast down the people's. He's in a completely helpless position, so he's not technically in a position to stick it to him. But he knows that he can't accomplish what he wants to be accomplished. He wants to be vindicated. He wants to be freed. He wants them to have justice brought to them, his enemies. And he knows that there's only one person he can trust in that moment. God will make it right. God will make it right. Solomon in Ecclesiastes brings this idea up over and over and over that it's until the end of life, it's not until the end of life that we will see God make it right. Things that happen in this life perplex us and confuse us. We're like, why would God let that happen? And you just have to wait and trust his word that he's going to make it right. There will be a day when he wipes away every tear. That's real. And in that same tone, that same idea, David looks at what could be the end of his life and asks God to make it right in his timing. So if you have enemies in your life that are wronging you, I would caution you against trying to take justice into your own hands, but that's not technically what the psalm is about. The psalm is about trusting God. So don't trust yourself to solve those problems. When you've been wronged, trust God to make it right. And you have to understand that that might happen in this life, it might not. You can suffer unjustly here as a believer and never see any change, but in the next life, 
he will make it right. That is the second time when we need to trust God in his word is when we have been wronged. Moving on to verse 8 through 11, we see the third time when we need to trust God in his word. We need to trust in God and his word when you feel alone. When you feel alone. You think about David, he had a number of brothers. He's a very popular young lad in Israel. I think all the ladies would have chased after him. Yeah, sure, Saul has killed his thousands, but man, David, tens of thousands. Famous guy. I think people loved him. I think the troops of Israel loved David as the guy who killed Goliath. I think this, he would have had a lot of friends. A lot of friends. Fast forward to this moment. He has no friends. You're in enemy territory, fearing for your life. Everyone is attacking you, and you feel like you're all by yourself. And look at what he says. You, speaking of God, you number my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? That is a fascinating verse to me. How poetically David describes how God accurately keeps track of everything happening in his life. The moment he feels absolutely betrayed and alone, he knows God is here and keeping track of everything I'm going through. You know, we quote all the time, he knows the number of hairs on our head. Do you know he knows the number of tears you've cried? Says it right there. He's keeping an account of everything that's happening. He's collecting every tear. I don't know about you, but if you feel alone, does that make you feel a little encouraged? I don't know how your week has gone. I don't know if you've had any days where you needed to cry. If you did, God was right there, keeping track of every one of them. David feels alone, and he knows God is right here with me. And you follow that into verse 9. When I cry out to you, my enemies will turn back. And I know this because God is for me. God's on my side. In the moment when I have no one, I have him. A thousand to one. It's not a thousand to one, it's a thousand to two. He's right here with me. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's always in you with the Spirit. His word is always true and present in your life. You're never alone. You can always trust God and his presence in your life. Right after this reflection in verse 10, we come back to the chorus. And I think it's even more beautiful the second time around. God, you keep track of my wanderings. You're putting every one of my tears in the bottle. You're keeping track of it in your book. And when I cry to you, my enemies will turn away because you're on my side. Verse 10. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
David shows unquenching trust in what he knows to be the most faithful thing in his life, his God and his God's words to him. When God speaks, it is true, and that never changes. And God's, he, David says in repetition, I will trust God, I will praise his word, I will trust God, I will praise his word, I will trust God, and I will not be afraid. Doesn't that verse just like do something to you? Man, that gets you going. Now, I have a really great illustration for this. If you've known anything that's been going on in my life the last couple of weeks, I've had some car difficulties, okay? You know, the last thing you want out of a car is for it to break down, right? You really, really want the car to be reliable. Now, I knew coming into wedding season this summer had uh, six weddings to be at. Thankfully, two of them were here at this church, but four of them I had to travel to some distance. And I knew that my 2006 Chevy Impala with a couple hundred thousand miles on it probably wasn't going to make it. So I knew I needed a new vehicle, so I'm going to purchase a new vehicle. And, you know, when you go to purchase a vehicle and you're getting something much nicer than your current car, what do you think about it? Man, this car is going to be so much better than what I have. And so I went from a 2006 Chevy Impala to a 2017 Chevy Equinox. 88,000 miles, this thing, it purred. It was beautiful. I bought it on a Wednesday, and I drove it to a wedding on Friday, and here I was, standing on the interstate in North Dakota. (laughs) Note, standing on the interstate in North Dakota, all alone. My car broke down. Hadn't had it two full days. And uh, internal engine failure, all the oil had leaked out, and it it seized on the side of the interstate. You talk about going from, like, bliss to panic. Man, this is a great car. Oil warning? That's odd. And I looked at the ticket. It should be fine. And then you need to, it's, the car doesn't talk, but this is what it was saying to me. You need to pull over right now, Charlie. Pull it over, engine dies. It's not, it's mechanical. It breaks down. It's not faithful. So I, I was ready to be done with the Equinox. Had a couple other weddings to go to. So they told me I could trade in that vehicle on another vehicle. I have a nice 2016 CRV out in the parking lot. Uh, but I traded that in and I drove that wedding over here for Luke and Allison's wedding, if you were here a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't had the car for one day. I left the, uh, was it the rehearsal or the actual wedding? I went to leave, and the car wouldn't start. And it's just like, man, can't you find something that's reliable? And thankfully, it was just a blown fuse. It's all great now. I'm going to drive to Arizona in that CRV this week, so pray for me. (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about stupid, you know, doing the same thing over and over. I'm going to break down in the middle of Kansas. It's going to be great. But I know that now, and that's what makes it better, okay? No. We really like things to be reliable. We really like things to be trustworthy. And I thought for sure I had a reliable vehicle. And you know what? As new, as shiny, as low mileage as you think your car is, it will eventually fail. 
And you know, what's interesting is learning that lesson while I'm studying this psalm. There's only one thing you can put your trust in that will never fail you. And it's expressed in verses 10 and 11. David's saying, you don't need a Chevy, you don't need a Honda. You need to trust God in his word because it will never fail you. It is the only 100% reliable thing in this life is God and his word. Which I know what you're thinking, you know. You're thinking death and taxes, but the Bible talks about both of those things, so I'm covered. So we need in those moments when we're absolutely alone to trust God and his word because they're the only reliable things for us in this life. They are the source of our joy, of our comfort, of our life. And we need to trust them. And that leads us to our last point here, last thing, last time when we need to trust in God and his word. And it's when we worship him. Verses 12 and 13 are really the only verses in the psalm that have a thrust of, of to do to them, of ought, like something I need to accomplish, if that makes sense. And it's really David resolving to act based on how trustworthy he knows God and his word to be. So because I know God is so true and so trustworthy that I can rely on him always, here's what I should do. Now, this is where, you know, you try to make a four-point outline that's parallel. You know, you have to word it a certain way. Trust in God and his word when you worship him. It works. It's not technically exactly what's there, but, you know, bear with me. Look at what he says. Verses 12 and 13. Vows to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Two things here to think through. It's actually really interesting grammatically uh, at the beginning of verse 12. It's actually confusing. We do this in our songs and in our poems. We sometimes break grammatical rules, right? You know, if you listen to Taylor Swift, she's not always spot on in her grammar, okay? The psalmists do that too. And there's a really weird construction going on in the beginning of this verse. But have you ever heard someone say, oh, that's on me? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's my fault. That's on me. That's actually how this is worded. And you you read it in the original language, and you look at it, and you're like, what in the world is that? It doesn't look right. But what he's saying is, it's on me. Like, God, you've been faithful. Now it's on me to do what I've said I will do, to pay my vows. And then the second half of that verse, to render praises to you, the idea of being thankful and giving thanks offerings. David is very specifically saying to the Lord, because of how good and true and trustworthy you are, now I have to worship you. It's on me to follow up. And since you're faithful, I need to be faithful. I need to be thankful to you, God. I need to pay my vows that I've committed to you because of how true you are. There's a motivation here. And I don't know about you, but 
you wake up on a Sunday morning, even a Sunday morning when you have to preach, you know, not to get personal with myself here, but you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're tired. You know, I, I went to the gym yesterday and, you know, that's hard for me. I don't know about you. You're sore, you're tired, and you're like, oh man, I don't know. Do I want to do this today? You ever struggle to come into corporate worship? You're just, you're just not in the right zone for it? How do you prepare your mind and your heart to step into worship? You think about how faithful God and his word is. David spent 11 verses thinking about how true and trustworthy God was. You know what his reaction to that is? <laughs> I have to pay my vows. I have to give you thankful praise because of how amazing you are, God. I cannot sit and be silent. I must worship you. It's a resolve, it's a motivation to worship God because of how trusting God is. And in verse 13, this is just you know, a really great cap to a psalm. Why must you pay those vows? Why must you render your praises? Well, because you have delivered my soul from death. You have delivered my soul from death. You realize that one of the greatest promises we possess as Christians is that our soul belongs to Christ outside of this physical life. The moment I die, I'll get eaten by wolves in the mountains. My body is there, my soul is present with the Lord. You're afraid for your life, you're alone, you're being attacked, and it leads to your own death. David says, you're good. As long as your soul has been delivered from death, by your Savior. And we see those promises so much clearer than David did. David looked forward to that Messiah. We see him clear as day. Jesus Christ, who has come, he died on the cross for our sins and rose again and offers eternal life, complete freedom from the grave and from death and its penalty and its curse. And we will live in eternity in perfection with that Savior. He has delivered us from our own sin that we could do nothing against. He has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. We all have that. So we got to pay our vows. We must give him offerings of praise and thankfulness because of how true and trustworthy his sacrifice for us was and is through Jesus Christ. Now, the last phrase of the psalm here, if you're reading New King James, it phrases it as a question, which is very typical of how the psalm has gone. There's been a, a bunch of questions that David has asked. I know I've skipped over them. It's because I want to come back to them. Now, I think these questions serve as great reminders of the points he's trying to make. So back in verse 4, in God, I praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? If all you remember from the psalm is that question, what can flesh do to me? Nothing. Verse 7, will the enemies escape? They'll do all this wrong and they'll escape justice. Will the enemy escape? 
No, they won't. Verse 8, are my tears not in your book? Yeah, they are. I think, I don't know poetically how the song would have sounded, but I think these are just like high points that are highlighted for us to remember. Verse 11, in God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Nothing. So then you come to verse 13, and if it is a question, which is one of the options, it's very uh, ambiguous uh, grammatically. Have you not kept my feet from falling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living? God, haven't you kept me to this point alive so that I can worship you and live a life to you of service? Answer, yeah, he has. The other way to take it is more, the fancy term is an adversative, it'd be more like, indeed, you have kept me from falling. It's, it's confident, but I like the question because it fits with the rest of the song. Hasn't God been faithful to you so far? Hasn't he given you everything you need? Hasn't he been there for you when you were afraid and alone and attacked? Yeah. Yeah, he was. He's been there through all of it. And David reminds us he's there right now. So as you think about your past week, you think about the week that's ahead of you, are there moments when you are tempted to be afraid or you were afraid? Moments when you felt attacked? Moments when you felt alone? Or moments when it was really hard to worship God? There's a very simple answer from Psalm 56. So in each one of those moments, we need to trust God and his word because they never fail us. So as I close in prayer, I just ask that you uh, invite you to respond to the word that we've heard. And if there are things we need to trust to the Lord, I would ask that you pray that silently as I close in prayer out loud. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And, uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. And, uh, God, you're so good. God, I know that in every one of these times of my life, you have been faithful, and your word is unchanging and true. And, Father, I ask that as a body of your children, your word would draw our hearts closer to you. And, God, that your spirit would reveal in us areas where we struggle to trust you, where we are very easily afraid or not wanting to trust in what your word simply says. Father, help us this week to remember this text when we encounter these moments where we need to trust you. And God, in those moments, help us remember your son and the many precious promises that are all yes to us through Christ. And uh, Father, thank you for our church here. Bless our time of fellowship and the remaining time of worship we have in the family service. And Father, all of this we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.